Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Virginia Delegate Elizabeth Bennett Parker. I thought she brought an incredible and fresh perspective on politics to our conversation. We talked about how she uses her master's degree in the anthropology of food to inform fresh food programs and policy in her state, her experience as a new mom in the House of Delegates, and the prospects for Democrats in a critical off-year election. Enjoy. Virginia Delegate Elizabeth Bennett Parker, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Look forward to talking to you today. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here. I want to start with food. might be just because I'm hungry, but I also think it's an underappreciated piece of our civic life. Political life has obviously huge implications. You have been involved in several food-based nonprofits, and then you carried some significant legislation around food in the last session. Can you talk a little bit about where this interest has come from and the role you see in your policymaking? Definitely. We could spend probably the whole hour on this. So I actually have a master's degree in food anthropology. Oh, wow. Yes. So have an academic interest in it. I also uh, did work in Singapore studying sort of food policy and food culture. So I guess my interest in sort of food mm-hmm. issues dates back more than 10 years. And I think, as you mentioned, food is an incredibly important aspect of our lives. Everyone needs to eat. There's huge implications from nutrition and health to, you know, how we treat farm workers, how our food is transported. You know, there's climate change impacts. Food waste is a a huge issue and one of the largest contributors to methane and landfills. So obviously, it's something that everyone does multiple times a day, um, or hopefully. And there's just so many different intersections between food and policy. So you mentioned the organizations that I had worked with previously. So I had started a social enterprise to fight food waste, both those negative environmental effects, as well as the fact that we waste food while members of our community go hungry. So I was working with and hiring women facing barriers to employment for a number of reasons. They may have been formerly incarcerated. They may have been experiencing homelessness. And so recognizing that folks facing those barriers to employment are more likely to be hungry. And I, so I did that and then was working with a local nonprofit called Together We Bake, as a hiring partner. And they did training for women and realized over time, there was a lot of different work that we were doing that was similar, and that maybe we could do more work together. So we joined forces in 2016. And then I rolled off of that organization last year. But I think it impacted my policymaking in a lot of different respects from the bill that I passed this past session was a wholesome food crop tax donation, or tax credit for donations. So working with farmers and food banks, basically farmers who donate excess produce or produce to food banks are now eligible or once again eligible. It was a reinstated tax credit, but we made some changes to it to hope, hopefully make it bigger and better and stronger. 
to help make sure that we're not only supporting farmers, but getting local food and fresh food and nutritious food into our food banks. Can you talk a little bit about the politics of food? It's one of those areas where I assume there would be just bipartisan agreement. We can all figure out it's there's lots of win-win-win opportunities, yet it seems hard to make food policy. Can you talk about some of the dynamics that you've seen and you know, also any future goals you have on policy in this area? Sure, definitely. Again, a lot there. So I'll speak sort of at the state level. I mean, the farm bill at the federal level is a whole other <laughs> whole other thing. But I think so in terms of, you know, food seems like a bipartisan issue, but can be hard. I mean, to that point, the food crop tax credit bill that I passed did have bipartisan support. I think it actually passed both chambers unanimously. Because when you have uh, something that farmers support and something that food banks support, I think everybody can get on board um, with supporting. But certainly have seen other policy areas related to food that I've tried to work on not gain support. So, for example, um, trying to expand SNAP benefits for senior citizens, especially with the unwinding that's happening. Folks are losing a lot of benefits. This was an issue even before that unwinding and sort of the drawdown of COVID funding and extra benefits. But, you know, was hearing from a lot of folks in my community about the challenges of SNAP, particularly for senior citizens. I mean, for everyone, really. But because the benefit can be so small for senior citizens, sometimes they don't even go through the application process or the recertification can be really lengthy and burdensome. And so trying to increase the benefit amount was not something that we were able to get done, but something I'll continue to work on. Similarly, I'm hoping to work on school meals. I had colleagues who carried that uh, school meals for all legislation and budget amendments in this past session, um, and that did not go anywhere, whereas we've seen other states make great strides in that. So that's something I'll be continuing to work on and focus on as well. But that's certainly where you can see the breakdown and not everyone agreeing on how we should address food and hunger. Well, uh, hopefully you can make some big progress in both those areas. It seems like those are needy communities where a little bit of food can have a profound impact on people's lives and communities. Adjacent to food is alcohol. Sometimes sometimes they're together. You had a really interesting bill lifting a prohibition on felons and alcohol licenses. Can you talk a little bit about why this prohibition existed in the first place and then the efforts to undo it? Thanks for that question. I don't know if I can really answer why that prohibition exists. <laughs> first place. Um, I think it's because Virginia as a southern state tends to be very conservative <laughs> when it comes to things like alcohol, among other things. So we've certainly made great strides on a number of different areas in the past few years. But let's see where to start with that. So that issue came to me actually from a constituent and certainly was informed by the work that I did with Together We Bake and working with folks who were coming back from the criminal justice system and looking for employment. Generally, the hospitality industry is a very forgiving industry industry and can be a good fit. But we were hearing from restaurants that even, you know, that are facing working workforce shortages, like so many industries right now. And it was really frustrating to them to have this additional barrier, and then even to not be able to promote staff they already had working for them into management roles. And so the policy did not make sense from a number of perspectives, from supporting restaurants and industry to supporting folks returning from the criminal justice system. Just to be clear for the listeners, the policy was that anyone who had a criminal conviction sort of couldn't serve alcohol. And so as you can imagine in the hospitality industry or other industries, that would be, that's a lot of jobs and a lot of people also prevented from getting those jobs. Absolutely. 
And so is that I don't remember the rest of your question at this yeah. point, but um, it was a very interesting bill going through session as well, because we had a lot of good support, but then it died in subcommittee along partisan lines initially. But I was actually able to bring it back from the dead working <laughs> with my colleagues across the aisle, making some changes to it. And then they let me bring it back the following week. I think it went on from there, but that was a very interesting bill. <laughs> there were lots, many amendments made uh, throughout the process, but we eventually got it across the finish line and signed by the governor. So that was exciting. Can I, I mean, I think these two bills that we've talked about so far, and you've had other legislative successes are bipartisan. There's, I think there's a sense that the two parties can no longer work together and one party is fundamentally dysfunctional as we're seeing in the House of Representatives right now. Can you talk about how you worked across the aisle and maybe there's hope for some of us about our system functioning? Yes. I mean, I think to that point, in the past two sessions, I think Virginia has passed about 40%. It's a little bit under that, but approximately 40% of the bills that have been introduced. So certainly there is a lot of legislation that is getting passed. And the I remember the breakdown, a number of those are unanimous. Not all of them are. But I think the point is, yes, a lot of people are concerned about the state of government and dysfunction, but we can still get things done. And sort of in terms of how I approached that, I think I tried to work my bills as hard as I can. So that involves like going and meeting with the folks on the committees and trying to suss out what those issues might be ahead of time before we get to the <laughs> committee hearing. And I would love to spend time figuring out how other state legislators work, legislatures work. I think in Virginia, we have a very condensed schedule that is actually not helpful <laughs> in a number of respects. Um, and so by that, I mean, we have a 60-day session one year, a 45-day session the next. I know that's not uncommon for legislatures to be part-time, but we sort of only find out about 24 hours ahead of time um, that a bill is going to have a hearing. And so sometimes you can predict which committee your subcommittee a bill is going to go to. Like, for example, ABC bill we were talking about, you know, there is an ABC subcommittee of the general laws committee. So you know who those members are and who you need to talk to. But sometimes other bills can sit different places. And so it can be hard to know who you need to talk to ahead of time. But I've gone down a tangent from your question. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I guess I'd like to talk a little bit about that and sort of a little bit of like, What's your life like? Because a part-time legislature is challenging because it's a lot of bills very quickly. It tend not to have big staff support and year-round staff support. So how did you manage the legislative session to make sure not only your bills were moving through, but maybe bad bills from your perspective were stopped and good bills were moved forward? What did you learn this session? I'm going to take a quick break here to just let our listeners know that if you want to find another podcast you might enjoy, I encourage you to check out EdChat. It's a dynamic podcast by the Education Reform Now Advocacy Organization. Join educators, policy experts, and advocates as they examine the intersection of education and politics. Conversations cover how to lead for students in an impactful ways, given record drops in test scores, how to navigate politically treacherous environments, how to ensure equity in education, gain insights into the policies that impact our students while discovering effective strategies to drive meaningful change. EdChats, the podcast for educational policy trends impacting today's political landscape, is available anywhere podcasts are found. There is so much there. <laughs> Where to begin? So I think, to your point, the Virginia legislature is part-time. We have 
we basically get one year-round full-time staff member. And I would say, when I say that the legislature is part-time, we're in session part-time. It's actually interesting. I'm on the finance committee and Governor Youngkin addressed us recently and he was acknowledging the outgoing legislative members and he acknowledged that it was a full-time job, which I appreciated. <laughs> but anyway, our staff support, I know, is certainly better than some other states, but it certainly leaves room for improvement as well. It's very common to hire a second staff person just for session and you may actually have to use campaign funds to do that, but there's just too much work for even two people. You may also have interns. There's also, you know, working together with fellow legislators in a caucus. You may not serve on all of the committees, but you can compare notes as to some, you know, some of the other bills that are happening in other committees that you may not hear later until they get to the floor. So things that I've learned are just, <laughs> it's helpful to have additional staff support for sure. And things move quickly. I don't know what other takeaways I have. Yeah. I mean, I think let's take a step back and say, like, how did you find yourself in this position? You served on the Alexander City Council and as vice mayor. What caused you to run for office? And then what caused you to run for state office? Sure. So I, like a lot of women and other folks across this country, was heavily inspired by the events of 2016. And I did not necessarily think I was going to run for office anytime soon, um, or I didn't know if I was ever going to run for office. But I went through a training program uh, in Virginia that also exists in other states called Emerge, specifically for Democratic women interested in getting involved. And that was sort of the first step. And my story to sort of how I decided to run after that parallels a lot of the research out there about specifically women and running for office and that, you know, we worry about family commitments. We don't necessarily think we're qualified. All sorts of things play in. We have to be asked multiple times. Um, and so all of those things came into play. Someone in the community who's very involved knew I was doing the training program, asked me when I was running. I said I wasn't sure I might not be running ever. <laughs> and they sort of were like, nonsense, you need to run for city council next year. And I initially wrote that off as ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> but it sort of kept on coming up. And long story short, I'd actually written it off. But then fast forward a few months, we're in February of 2019. No, 2018. Sorry, 2018. And I was sort of asked again. And at that point, there were 12 people running for six seats. And only two of them were women. So there wasn't even a chance of there being a half female city council. Some of the men were my exact same age and didn't have the same experience of having started a business and co-leading a nonprofit. And I didn't have enough time to talk myself out of the decision, to be honest. Um, it was already February. There were 12 people in the race. The primary was in June. Um, it was late February at that. So I sort of wound up jumping in and again was inspired by the work that I was doing at Together We Bake. My mom had always taught me if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And so there were you know, various challenges that the women in that program were facing and only so much we could do as a nonprofit. So things like affordable housing in Alexandria, that was one of the reasons that I got into the city council race as well, in addition to all the things that I've just said. So that's sort of how I wound up in running for city council. And then in terms of uh, running for state level office, I think I love serving at the local level, but in Virginia, we're a Dillon rule state, which means that all of the authority that localities have is has to come from the General Assembly. So there are a lot of things we couldn't do. But I did know that going into city council, but it was frustrating sort of at almost every day, a new appearance of that popped up, whether it was someone saying, you know, why can't we have a five cent fee on plastic bags the way DC and Maryland, you know, especially being so close to DC and Maryland, we heard a lot of, you know, <laughs> 
things are happening over there. Why can't we do this in Alexandria? Other examples, you know, we couldn't ban firearms from our own city hall and government buildings until the General Assembly gave us the authority to do that. One of my favorite areas of work that I've been working on for four years is the issue of electronic meetings and electronic participation and remote access for even like our advisory boards at the city level. So we have an environmental policy commission. We have a commission for women. Even how the volunteers who are appointed to serve on those bodies are able to participate remotely is something that is controlled by the state. And until I started working on it, it was very limited and it's still very limited, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, I mean, I, I will just say, I mean, I think my community here, we saw a wholly different group of people and a quality of the conversation happened when we had virtual meetings and people didn't have to schlep themselves down to city hall and get babysitters and take time off work and everything else. And you're seeing many States revert away from that. And it's a challenge for a democracy. If you want to make it accessible to people, you have to come to them. Can't always expect everyone to come to to you. So that experience on the city council and the challenge of the sort of power of the state, have you been able to address that and get some local authority reestablished? It must be, how do you use your experience on the Alexander City Council to inform your policymaking at the state? Absolutely. So I'm very much not a fan of unfunded mandates for localities. (laughs) Um, and generally appreciate the opportunity to, you know, especially in some of the areas that we've been talking about, give uh, localities more flexibility. Um, so, for example, when I was on city council, one of the other areas was collective bargaining. So the General Assembly had to give us the ability to allow collective bargaining for our own employees. So that was an effort I led on the city council once we had that authority. And jumping from city council to the House of Delegates especially last year with the switch in control of the House of Delegates, we saw all of the attempts to repeal those bills. So we had bills that attempted to repeal our ability to ban firearms from buildings, attempts to repeal the collective bargaining, so on and so forth. But I think having served at the local level really informs my work at the state level and is also a valuable perspective to have. So I haven't redone the numbers, but when I was running for the General Assembly um, for the House of Delegates, only 18 out of 100 members had actually served in city or county government, which is an interesting number. <laughs> yeah, that makes it a challenge to build awareness around an issue that they they may not have as much sympathy for if they haven't experienced. You are running for re-election, and I think a lot of the country is looking at Virginia to understand you know, where the political winds may be facing heading into 2024. What are you seeing in Virginia in terms of where the electorate is and and what, what you think the outcome might be? This is an incredibly important election for Virginia as all 140 seats in the General Assembly, both the House and the Senate, are up this year. It is obviously an off-year election for us. And there is so much at stake from protecting abortion rights, protecting voting rights, which has huge implications for 2024, protecting the environmental progress we've made, and so much more. I am cautiously optimistic, but I don't have a crystal ball. I think we've got a lot of great candidates who are doing really hard work in terms of knocking on doors, getting out that message of the importance to vote, particularly this year. I think abortion is a top issue for a lot of us. And, you know, we've seen that issue play out in other states and sort of voters 
do not appreciate the government trying to interfere in a person's medical decision that they should be making with their family and their doctor. And so I think, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but that's certainly on the ballot along with everything else. Yeah. And I assume you're seeing it resonate with voters in terms of motivating them to get to the polls and maybe motivating for them to switch parties or support different candidates. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well, Good to know. Fingers crossed for you and for your state and for the country. When you're heading out in the election trail, you are balancing being a new mom. And how do you think about how to serve your community, be a new mom? And then what policies would you like to see to make it easier for more people with families to serve in elected office? Definitely. So it has been challenging, uh, but rewarding, obviously. So I had my daughter in May, so she just turned five months old. And she's fantastic, but campaigning and legislating with a baby is certainly a, a different ball game. I finally took her uh, door knocking for the first time earlier this month. I thought it was finally cool enough to take her, um, and it was still 80 degrees uh, and got hot quickly. <laughs> and somehow door knocking goes a little bit more slowly when you have an extra like 20 pounds strapped to your chest. <laughs> then it was nap time. But I think, let's see, you asked a couple of questions. Yeah, I think just partly like how's it going and how did you think about seeking re-election now that you have this daughter in your life? Just your life was challenging before. It's even more challenging now. And then frankly, what should all these systems do to make it a little bit easier for people with young families to serve? Definitely. So I think in terms of thinking about re-election, I, I was pregnant when I announced that I was running for office. And that continued to inspire me, right? I want to continue to work on all of the things that we've talked about because I want my daughter to grow up in a Virginia where she has more rights than I than a lot of women currently do. And I want her to grow up and I want both of us to not have to worry about the active shooting drills that she's going to have to do when she goes to school and all of the gun violence that we're seeing across the country. I also think, you know, I was a strong supporter of paid family leave before I was pregnant and had her, but it's possible to be even more pro paid family leave. I certainly am, but I was very supportive before. I think in terms of sort of what we need to do to better support families with young children. I mean, there's so much, both what we need to do to support families with young children, just generally as a country and as a policy from paid family leave, as an example, and affordable child care. But if you also want to talk about the importance of having folks with young kids in the legislature, you know, you're more likely to have some of those policies pass when you have people with lived experience who fully understand what it's like. And so that sort of level of representation is important. But I'm really grateful for the work of Vote Mama, for example, which is working to make sure that candidates running for office can use campaign funds for childcare because that's a huge barrier. Some of the remote access and remote voting that we've been talking about. I'm even talking about working on it at a, you know, trying to get volunteers appointed to boards to be able to participate remotely and have virtual meetings. But there's a whole other level of this where, you know, state legislatures were not set up <laughs> with young, you know, people with young children in mind. They were set up by gentleman farmers. <laughs> and so, for example, the budget compromise that was reached in Virginia this year didn't come out until September. We got sort of one week's of notice, one week of notice of like when we had to be back in Richmond. My husband was leaving town for work that same day. And you don't know how long that session is going to last. So I wound up like figuring out childcare here until 8pm. And I was sort of like, if we're not done by 5pm, then I just I'm gonna bounce. <laughs> because I'm just not allowed to vote remotely. I was not allowed to participate remotely. COVID is the only reason that you can do that right now. And so it worked out, we were done on time. But you know, I think back to 
say if we'd had that budget compromise shortly after I had given birth, for example, like there's no way I would have made it down to Richmond for that vote. So I think there's a lot that we need to do to modernize um, not just legislatures, but also local elected office and sort of recognizing that these quote unquote part-time jobs are not actually part-time jobs and require um, all sorts of scheduling gymnastics, I would call them, (laughs) and sort of being a little bit more accommodating at the state and local level to recognizing that folks have other responsibilities, whether that's in many cases paid work and family and other things going on or accommodating of that. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate having you in the New Deal. We appreciate having you and your daughter in the legislature and certainly look forward to seeing what you can do to make it more accessible to people with families. And then also the exciting food policy that I think can truly transform lives. So it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Same. Thanks so much for the opportunity. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.